Embark on a journey with us where resilience meets opportunity. This is The Dirt Road to Success. Hi, I'm Skip Colvin with Dirt Road to Success. We have a very special show for you today. We're talking about education. Education is very important to me. It's important to a lot of people out there I know, so I'm really excited about this show. It's really talking about saving our education system in America, K-12. through We know that the education system has gone off the rails. I mean, it's really gotten bad. So we have a special guest with us today, Julie Pickren. Uh, Julie's here in Texas, so we're going to talk a lot about Texas stuff, but we're also going to get on a national level. Julie is the member of the Texas State Board of Education District 7. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So let me tell you why education is very important to me. Uh, growing up, uh, youngest of seven, uh, first one to graduate high school, we had some challenges with, with my siblings ahead of me. School was not really that big of a focus. It really wasn't one of the things that we put a lot of emphasis in. When I said I wanted to go to college my senior year in high school, I mean, I was kind of looked down on. It was like, really, you want to go to college? But for me, what I did was, unfortunately, is I moved from one school in our community to another school. And who was instrumental in that move was our superintendent. He ended up being superintendent, but he was our principal, Mr. Russell Saypal. And to this day, if I see him, I give him a hug and tell him I love him because he saw potential in me that others did not. I didn't see it in myself for one. But for me, if I would not have made the change to another school, I probably wouldn't have graduated high school. Probably really would have been kicked out or just dropped out, which has kind of seemed to be the pattern. Now, I do have some siblings that went on and got their GED and went on to college, and, and I'm, I'm very, very proud of them. Uh, but, but shifting over to this new school, Julie, I went from the Arkansas side to a Texas school. Um, one of the things I noticed was a lot of the students – in, in my class were really focused on education. They were very focused on a college degree. Well, that was kind of foreign to me because, you know, I was thinking, okay, I grow up, I get out of high school, I go to work at the mill or I go to work at, you know, the depot or I go to work at, you know, one of the main factories around our community and that's, that's what you did, right? But I saw something in them that gave me that kind of that fire. But also, as some will tell you, that I had a girlfriend and she was motivated to go to college. And although we didn't get married and things moved on, but I contribute a lot to her mom and dad and her for giving me that, really that desire to do something better, to kind of move beyond. And I won't mention her name. She knows who she is. And anybody I went to high school with knows who she is. And by the way, our 35-year class, 35 class reunion is coming up, so I'm sure I'll see a lot of them. But, but the reality is if it were not for her family, uh, I probably wouldn't have graduated high school. So there have been people influential in my life that helped me in education. I have some great teachers that I would love to mention that, that really kind of, you know, did something special. So when I think about education, I think about the young people that we had today, and they're going to school, they're going to high school, they're going to junior high, they're doing all these things. Having a very good teacher who loves to teach, who wants to be there, is is critical to the success. We'll talk a little bit later, but uh, education was so important to me. I went on and got my bachelor's degree. I went on and worked on a, a graduate degree in, in my field of study at SMU. And so I'm very, very happy to be able to do those kind of things, but also served as president of school board and a board member of a Christian school because biblical worldview became really my focus. 
And I believe that a biblical worldview education is really what has caused uh, getting away from that is what's caused our education system to get off the rails. So anyway, enough about me. You guys understand my passion on education. I think that's the one thing that you can never take away from someone. They can lose their job. They can lose their house. They can lose their cars, but they can't lose the education. And I believe that we never, ever stop learning. I think we always have to pursue uh, some kind of study. So with that, I want to talk a little bit about what you think the role of the federal government is in education. Well, first of all, I love your story. You know, as a Christian, we would call that your testimony, right? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So I love your history and your story because education is the great equalizer. Mm. It's one of the great equalizers in American society. Education says it doesn't matter where you're born, what economic class, Mm -hmm. what race, what skin color. It does not matter. Everyone through a great education can achieve the American dream. So that your story is the story of the American dream. So what a, what a beautiful introduction and what a beautiful testimony to the power of education just in your own life. And then of course, in your career, all of the, all of the people that you affected, right? Creating jobs, expanding the tax base, improving the economy in areas where you, where you lived and where you worked. So what a great testimony to the power of education on America. Well, you, 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 you make me sound kind of good there. I don't know if that's the case, but, but I love that description. So just keep it coming. I love it. I love it. Well, before we get into that first question, t- tell me about your education background. I understand you just finished a pretty, pretty big deal. I did. I just finished uh, the Wharton School of Business Executive Leadership Program with an emphasis on international business. And so um, that was that was an extraordinary process to go through. Um, Really, uh, this speaks to the heart of I am. I love business. So, you know, that speaks to the foundation of me. How I ended up in education really is God's sense of humor. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, as a Christian, you just never know where the Lord's going to take you. You never know what God has in store. And so I'm very thankful though that he did provide a path for me to serve in education because I love serving children yeah that's great but there's a lot more to you than just that uh yes sir. yeah there is just a little bit so you know you we talked a little bit before the show um just kind of about your background of course obviously the Wharton deals good but you're also advisory to the EU on education, right? I am. I had the honor of um, going to Europe in November, you know, spent um, a long time in Europe, about three weeks in Europe, where I had the honor of meeting with um, many different presidents and prime ministers to help advise them on pro-education policies that Mm -hmm. protect faith, family, and freedom. Inside of education, um, I was invited to Prime Minister Viktor Orban, President Katalin Novak's demographic summit in Hungary, mm. where many world leaders were there to discuss policies, faith, family, freedom, pro-family policies in um, education and, and in many different areas. And then from there, I had the honor to go and speak to five different parliaments in Europe. And then wow. that, and then also um, meeting with the representatives from the European Union that um, uh, chaired the Committee of Education. Actually, education for the European F- Union falls under um, human services. Yeah. And so um, to advise them on best practices for education and for the European Union. And so I'll be going back in March for a European Union summit to advise them further. You know, uh, and just kind of bring this kind of to reality here. I mean, you, you have you who serves in Texas and in our education system, 
but then you're advising the European Union on how to protect and promote proper education in those countries. Really, I mean, think about your stage. You know, you said, and I love you. I try not to think about it. It's overwhelming. (laughs) Well, you know, I I like what you said. God has a sense of humor, right? That's kind of how you got there. I think about, you said testimony, or there's been many a testimony. You know, a a Christian will have multiple testimonies, how God has worked in their life. But sometimes the the biggest thing is say what you don't want to do. Right. And and that's when you really see God's sense of humor because he sends you where you're not mm-hmm. supposed to. You don't want to go or you don't want to do, you know, and he'll, he'll send you there. But just for your passion in education, obviously, it's for the children. Obviously, it's something focused that is very high priority on your list. What made you drive to want to do that? Um, I mean, it's, it's it didn't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to go into education. No, actually, I never woke up one day and said I wanted to serve in education. Um, if you're familiar at all with Texas politics, um, back in uh, around, you know, 2012 to 2015, 16, kind of in that mm-hmm. time frame, um, you know, we saw the really the emergence of the Tea Party in Texas. And then, oh, yeah. you know, we had the established Republican Party in Texas. And so, you know, back in, in those times, in those years, you couldn't in, you couldn't get the Tea Party and the Republican Party to even agree that the sky is blue, mm. right? We saw a lot of um, fighting between the groups and a lot of uh, frustration and anger between the groups over sure. the direction that our state should go and our local government should go between the Tea Party and the Republican Party. Now, I'm going back years. That's right. not the case today. Praise God we have unity back in the Republican Party of Texas. But mm-hmm. going back to those years, it was a... It was b- very much a time of contention. Okay. And um, in my local area, I had the, in one day, I had the leader of the Tea Party call and ask me to run for my local school board. And a few hours later, I had the leader of the Republican Party call and ask me to run for my local school board, serving about, at the time, serving about 25,000 children. Okay. And I said, Lord. Wh- which school board was this? Uh, this was a school district just south of Texas. It was um, Alvin ISD, which at the time was the fastest okay. growing school district in Texas. Yeah, adding, just south of Houston, yeah. Yes, yeah. just um, adding between 1,000 and 1,500 kids every summer. And um, uh, covers about 252 square miles. So a very large district land-wise, yeah. but it had not been developed yet. Okay. So there, it was a huge economic boom in the area, because mostly because of the Texas Medical Center. Right. And the cost of living was relatively inexpensive for families. Mm-hmm. And so just huge growth. I mean, house, whole neighborhoods going up and houses going up faster than you could shake a stick at. Wow. So. It was the fastest growing school district in Texas for a while. It's still in the top 10 of fastest growing school districts, but um, they needed some help uh, economically. They needed okay. some help because they were going into a lot of debt and making a lot of huge financial decisions. So leadership in my county asked me to run just to help come to the board and, pr- and help provide some financial mm-hmm. stabilization for the school board and for the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I needed a burning bush moment because it was never in my heart to really serve in an elected capacity. I very much enjoyed my private yep. life. Yes, yes. And so that happened on a Saturday. Sunday morning, I'm at church. Church ends. The pastor says, wait a second, everybody. Don't leave. I want everybody to come up to the stage to pray for you. If God has called you to government, to serve in government, come to the stage right now. I'm going to pray for you. 
And I said, oh, my goodness. Okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, here we go. <laughs> yes. I love that story. That's yes. fantastic. So then uh, the pastor was a, a handful of us that went up mm-hmm. to the stage. Obviously, God's call has been on a lot of people's yeah. life. It's not about Julie. It's about, you know, people wanting to serve the kingdom of God. And so, anyways, went up to the stage. Pastor prayed for us. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. But what happened was after about a year of serving in my school district and Mm -hmm. really helping them with financial decisions, which to this day, my taxpayers in my school district is saving almost $12 million a year due to restructuring long-term debt. Wow. So even past my service, in uh, on my local school board my taxpayers are still benefiting from great financial decisions and hiring great people to lead our district yeah. financially that's great but um you know built nine new schools yeah. with two tax compressions and never raising taxes wow so it can be done I, thank it's, you it's not a way. money issue it's a priority issue yeah. Also, as far as I know, we were the first school district in the state to put a million dollars in our budget, almost a million dollars, just north of $900,000 to put an armed person on every single one of our campuses wow. to make sure that our children were protected at all times. That's so it, I can sit here and tell you, honestly, it is not a funding issue. It's a priority issue of Amen. the leadership. I absolutely. You know, we have yep. Chicago Public Schools that spends the very most on student education. They spend just south of $30,000 a year per student on education. Mm. And I don't think there's anybody that would sit at a table of influence to say that Chicago Public Schools is the model uh, for every student in America. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Right. I mean, so from what I've, you know, yes. read and understand. Yes. Yeah. So after a, about a year of my public service at my local school board, I really fell in love with education. Okay. I fell in love and I saw the power that education can have to transform lives, mm-hmm. really to change lives, to really give every child, regardless, like I said, regardless of where they're born or what their skin color is or what their economic status is, I really saw the power of education that it can provide every single child an opportunity to live the American dream. Mm-hmm. And that's when I fell in love with education. So what I did was, like I did in the business world, I found the top people in education, and I went to them and I asked them to mentor me because I realized that I needed to really fast track to understand federal law and okay. state law and uh, uh, federal financing and state financing. There was a whole, there was, it was like a whole new world opened up to me because edge of the way education works is very different than business. Mm-hmm. It is. Hiring practices, contracts, <coughs> funding. It's very different than business. And so I've, I, this whole world opened up to me and I realized I needed to know what I didn't know. Yeah. And so yeah. I went and I found really great mentors um, to mentor me, to really teach me to understand what, what the Constitution says, what federal law says, what state law says, so I could really get a firm grasp so I could serve my constituents well in education. Wow. First thing, thank you. Um, I mean, you said a lot there, okay? Um, and that, that's in an, a show in and of itself of just going through that process. But secondly, I, I can sense your passion because, you know, the, the challenge I see today, and, and we'll get into the – the governmental's role into education. The challenge I see today is we don't have a lot of people who are passionate. They're doing it for a paycheck. They're doing it for retirement. They're doing it for whatever. Um, and your passion is to really help people. 
uh, you know, one of the things that and, – and I didn't go to some big Ivy League school and some big fancy education. I worked two jobs. I paid for one semester. I went to the – you know, it was just back and forth. It took me took, – I was on that six-year plan, right? Right. But I just kept moving forward. That's right. One more semester. One more semester. And that's all God asked us to do. God right. only asked us to take the next step. The next step, yeah. And, and to be honest with you – I remember, um, and and I know some of my siblings will watch this probably, but I remember them not believing I was really graduating because they're like, it's taking you forever. Yeah, I really was graduating, you know, and it was a a big deal for me. It was a very big personal achievement for me to graduate from college. Um, High school, obviously, graduated from high school and some family was there, but uh, I remember my mom was the only one that showed up for the graduation, you know, for college, and it was like, wow, you really didn't believe I was doing it. But that passion you're talking about, because that just graduating college opened so many doors for me. It, it gave me an opportunity. I felt like I could accomplish something so big there was nothing that could stand in my way. Now, I wasn't arrogant or I wasn't, you know. Sure, your I, success built your confidence. Yes. I just I just feel like if I can make it here, I can make it in doing anything. Absolutely. And it was so exciting to hear someone as passionate, but, but to see other people around me like, yeah, we can, we can do this. I mean, education, what you said, is the greatest equalizer. I've never heard that before, but you're exactly right. That's right. Anybody can right. get I an mean, education. I mean, look at Dr. Ben Carson, right? I mean, literally, yeah. if you look at Dr. Ben Carson's life, every, <clears throat> excuse me, everything was set against him. Yep. If we ran Dr. Ben Carson's early childhood through an AI rubric, it would probably spit out that, you know, he would be dependent on the government. He would yeah. be in some type of welfare system. He would be, you know, who knows what, right? Because, right, right. But that is what the power of God and education can do in someone's life. Yep. You know, he's a leader in not only in medicine, but a leader in government. I mean, just what a wonderful man of God, but education is what was the vehicle that God used to promote him. Well, you know, I, you know God has all given us all gifts. We all have gifts. I'm still trying to figure out mine. But <laughs> but the reality is he's given, and his gift was being able to be that surgeon. Absolutely. Think about the, the people's, the families that he's impacted from what he's done. Sure, one of yeah. the most brilliant surgeons of modern history. That's right. And and a smart business guy. And smart politician, you know. It, my opinion, Not you don't have to think that way, but I do. So. Well, I do, too. I, he's a dear friend, and That's I'm good. very thankful for his service to our country. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's <laughs> let's get to government's role in education. Yes, sir. What is the federal government's role in education? Um, <clears throat> so well now we have to go back to when the Department of Education was created. Okay. Because the Department of Education and the federal role of education is not in the U.S. Constitution. Okay. It's not in the Declaration of Independence, right, the precursor, and it's not in the, U- in the U.S. Constitution, where the Department of Education, where the federal government became active in education, was in 1979. Uh, Jimmy Carter, whenever he was running for president, made some promises to some very powerful unions that they the, the federal government would get involved in education. And so then we had the creation of the Department of Education Mm -hmm. under President Jimmy Carter. And so the idea of the federal government in education is really kind of a new concept. You know, going back to 1979, that's not that long ago. No. But really where education falls is its 10th Amendment. It's a state's rights issue. The states are who are are truly in charge of the education of the students of that state. Does each state have its own education department? 
Yes, every state does. And for Texas, the creation for public education is actually in our, in our state constitution, in the Texas Constitution. The Texas Constitution in Article 7 actually says the purpose. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, okay? Mm -hmm. But the purpose of a public education is to preserve our liberties and our freedoms. So as a Texas parent, you have to, or grandparent, or taxpayer, right? Everybody benefits from great education. So whenever you're looking at education in the state of Texas, you have to ask, does the education fulfill the Texas Constitution? Is what our children are learning, does that preserve our liberties and our freedoms? And if the answer is no, then you have to take a hard look at what's happening inside of education. Because what a lot of people don't know is, you know, Texas was a very large territory. The Republic of Texas was very large into Oklahoma, into Colorado, up to Wyoming. And whenever Texas joined the Union in 1845, Texas sold off a lot of those territories, what's known as Colorado, Oklahoma, all the way up through to Wyoming, Utah. We sold that off to the United States for $10 million. Mm. And Texas took $2 million of the $10 million to fund the permanent school fund to start public education in the great state of Texas. So not only did our founding fathers write it into our Texas Constitution that education should preserve our liberties and our freedoms, they took 20% of where they sold off most of Texas to the United States. They took 20% of that money to fund it. Mm. So you know the education... Big priority to them. Yes, had to be a very big priority to the founding fathers of the great state of Texas. Let's let's roll back a few minutes. You you mentioned 1979, uh, Jimmy Carter's running for office. Um, There's not a federal education department at that time. He makes some promises to some unions. Who were those unions? Well, I think that that is the beginning. That's the AFL-CIO, which is the parent union over the American Federation of Teachers that we have today. Okay. Um, So it was not in place at the time. It was to create that. Yes. Okay. They created, yes, President Jimmy Carter created the Department of Education. You know, we think about all the states each having their own education department, and then there's all this rumbling about um, school choice. And, you know, I, I know I have my opinion, but I, I want to I get your opinion on what you think about school choice. Now, I know I pay taxes on, on for education, and I don't have kids in school. Uh, but if I did have kids in school, my opinion would be if I wanted them to go to a certain school, I would love it if I could do the voucher or whatever you call that program to be able to send my tax dollars to that school to help pay for that. But but I want to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, you're obviously, I'm, I'm out here looking in. You're right in the middle of it. So I want your thoughts on it. So at the core of education and all aspects of education, right? So you can't isolate funding away from instructional materials, away from uh, sex education, away from, you have to look at education holistically, okay? And that includes funding. And whenever you look at education holistically, you have to start with the foundation that children belong to their parents. Hmm. Whoa. Okay, hang on. Stop the presses. Now say that again. Okay, you have to, okay, I'll say this one more time, okay? Because you just said something that people need to hear. Oh, absolutely, because we're hearing a lot of it from the other side that children belong to the government. That's right. Say it again. Say it again. We're going to preach this one out. Go ahead. Okay, you have to look at education (laughs) holistically. 
right? You have to look at the funding component. Mm -hmm. You have to look at textbooks or instructional materials. You have to look at mental health, even physical health, right? That's that you have to look at, at a child and education holistically. Mm -hmm. And at the foundation of all of those aspects of education, you have to operate from the core belief that children belong to their parents. Man, I, I, so I love this, okay, because, you know, uh, there has been a lot of talk that no, you know, you, you don't tell the parents what the kids are doing, you know, getting in all this, and I'm just, look, I'm a redneck, okay? I believe it's real simple, okay? Um, I grew up in a school with, uh, discipline. Okay. I grew up in a house with discipline and you know, that Mr. Russell say Paul has, has whipped me a many a time with a paddle. And some of these parents are, you know, sorry, but y'all, some of y'all are crybabies and y'all think your kid is perfect and your kid's not. It's because it starts at home. I call it home training. It's, it's where you teach kids to have respect for other people, other people, not just older people, adults, but other people. And when you talk about the buck stops with the parents, parents the kids belong to the parents. Absolutely. It, it goes back to schools and these other organizations don't need to be telling the parents how to raise their kids. That's exactly right. Because, yeah. you know, I, I go back to the Word of God. Mm. And the great thing about the Bible, about the Word of God, is there are many religions that recognize the Bible, right? So whenever you look at the Old, Old Testament, that puts us in agreement with people of Jewish faith, people um, of Islamic faith. There's a lot of religions that recognize the significance and the importance of the word of God, and especially whenever you tie it back to the Old Testament. So there's a lot of intersection of agreement on parents' rights, whether you're a, de, de, not depending on if you're a Christian or not, right? There is There are many people of faith that can agree that, that children belong to their parents because the idea of children belonging to the government is a secular humanist or communist worldview. And so we can find okay. a lot of commonality with many people of faith on the premise that children belong to their parents. Well, well let's just set the foundation. Psalm 127, the Bible says that children are an inheritance from God and a blessing from God. God was not, the Bible was not talking to government. The Bible was talking to families, to mm -hmm. parents, and that's the foundation. Well, the, the foundation in and of itself is this, whether you're a believer or not, your kids are yours. That's right. You know, um, it, it, I, I used to tease my kid. And there was a sitcom. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was um, it was Bill Cosby. He said, I brought you into this world and I take you out of it, you know. And right. I tease <laughs> with my kids that all the time. But the reality is my kids belong to me. That's right. They're your okay? children. They're, they're mine. And uh, I had my son on with one of our other shows, and we talked about the blending because, you know, I'm a stepdad, and obviously he's my stepson, but I call him son. I don't. I never use the word stepson, and we talked about that. And I, and I, I would tell anybody. I said, "No, they're mine. I beat them like they're mine." You know, <laughs> and and that's a joke. But the reality is, is that, you know, they're ours. They're not the schools. Right. They're not whoever else's. It's our role to teach those kids the right path. That's and, right. And I will be honest with you. I have failed in that in many occasions, which is the whole purpose of this show is to show that people can fail but they keep getting up. Well, that's grace. 
Yeah. Grace it says is. it doesn't matter. You know, in Texas, we would say, okay, you fall down, you pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you carry on. I got on. my boots on right now. There you go. Yeah. So um, that's grace. Grace says it doesn't matter how many times that you fall, that God will always give you the power, the authority, the resilience yeah. to get back up. And that's what we need to instill in our child, in our mm-hmm. children, is as parents, we yeah. need to instill in our children what's called emotional resilience. Yes. Because whatever mistake you make does not define your eternity. It does not. It, it does. I mean, you have so much more. I was talking to some, these, I got these three kids from church that help around the farm and uh, they were helping today. And we were, I was, one of them mentioned that, you know, he's having some struggles with his parents. And I said, remember this, you have to listen to understand, not listen to respond. And I said, your parents love you. Be respectful. Understand that they're trying to do everything they can to raise you the right way. And I said, don't don't even underestimate the power and the pressure that parents are under in raising kids today, not to mention the stuff that they have to learn at school, and then sometimes they come home and have to undo that. Right. Parents, parents struggle every day, and a lot of times we are not vulnerable enough to let our kids know we're struggling. So they think everything is perfect, and they don't understand why mom and dad are stressed. Well, I think what happens is that we get so busy, okay? And I'm an, I am a mom, okay? Yeah. I have two wonderful sons that God blessed my husband and I with. And so I am a mom, and I think what happens is that we get so busy that yeah. we forget those conversations with our children. Yeah. And so um, I'm a huge proponent of dinner time as a family at uh, night. I yes. think that is that is really key to forming a firm foundation yeah. in our families and our homes is having that time at night where you gather around a meal together and you just discuss the day. Yeah. You just talk about the day because your kids are experiencing a lot. I mean, if they're in school during the day, they're there for seven or eight hours. Mm-hmm. And on a school day, you have to think about as a parent on a school day, you maybe get three or four hours with your child, yeah. but somebody else is getting seven or eight hours right. with them in the day. And you don't want them teaching them something counterintuitive to what you are. Exactly, because we've seen that. I mean, all over the nation, parents have come forward with those experiences Mm -hmm. where parents are going, I don't even recognize my children anymore. You know, I've sent them to this school or I've sent them to this college and they're coming back and they're they're not our family's culture. And that even happened a little bit in my own home, to be honest. Mm. Um, In my own home, you know, I told you dinner time is very important for our family. Yeah. It's kind of where we unpack the day and talk about things and sure. guide our children in conversations and what have you. And um, I realized that at dinner time that there was this um, conflict between my children and I. I realized that my children were forming a worldview that was not mine and my husband's worldview. Mm. And so we started to talk through it and what have you. And it was influence of people at the school on my children. They were shaping my children's worldview. And here I am a leader in education. And in my own children, they're getting a conflicting worldview from mine and my husband's worldview. Wow. And so uh, my husband and I really had to take a step back and really pray about it. Because, you know, as Christians, our first ministry is our own family. Right? Absolutely. Okay. And so it doesn't matter what I go and do for the world or how I lead for the world if my own children are not being ministered to and guided. Right. And so it just so happened about that same time frame 
that um, that we were praying about this. My children were accepted to Liberty University. Mm. And so now after two years at Liberty, of course, you know, they're young, so they're yeah. still at home. But after two years at Liberty, um, that shares mine and my husband's worldview and the culture of my family yeah. and the culture of, you know, my extended family. I feel like our children, that we're back to having dinner conversations where we're sharing the same cultural and the same worldview with our kids. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. So Liberty University obviously is a, a wonderful university. It's a Christian-based organization with worldview, biblical worldview. But let's talk about your son because he's not very old. No, he's and not. He, he's he got 14. accepted. He's 14 years old. You're, wait, let's make sure we understand this, folks. 14 years old. He's in his second year at Liberty? He is. He's about to graduate from their um, dual credit high school program where he'll okay. graduate with his associate's degree in business this spring. So he'll be 15 when he graduates? Uh, yes. Actually, he'll turn 15 right before graduation. Okay, so he turns 15. He gets to graduate from high school. At 15, plus he's got an associate's degree. In business, from the School of Business. And then he's going to continue on and get his bachelor's degree. He is. His long-term goal is he wants to graduate from Liberty Law School. It, it's wow. very interesting. From the time he was three years old, he's told me that he wants to be an attorney. And I didn't know that he, that he even understood that when he told me when he was three. Right. So, you know, I kind of question like any mom would do. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, baby, what does that mean to you? He's like, you know, mommy, people that this is what he tell me as a three-year-old. You know, mommy, people that help with the law and help decide the law and help people were, were about the law. Wow. So I said, well, he's three years old and he gets it. And he started reading right after he was one-year-old. So, but he, um, I just want to emphasize the importance of public education mm -hmm. because he got, he went to Liberty, right? He got to that point in his life yeah. coming from a public education. Right. Because whenever I was a trustee, when I was first elected, remember I told you I come from a business background. Yep. So I'm data driven, right? Yep. I don't. I don't really care so much about feelings and emotions. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I want to see the numbers and I want to see the data. Um, and so. Um, so no tears from you. Uh, no, sir. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't happen in my world. Okay, so um, anyway, so whenever I was first elected, uh, that we hired a new superintendent right as I was being elected, and okay. so he was coming into the school district new also, which was really a blessing because I told him, I said, look, I said, um, give me all the data, all of your accounting information, yeah. all of your state reports, all of your data, all the academics data. Right. I said, just dump everything on me and let you and I meet in three weeks to discuss it. Okay, because I wanted to analyze the data first before I had any conversation sure. concerning leadership. Sure. I needed to know what was happening. Well, when I looked at the data, there were two groups of children that really our data showed were not being served well. One was autistic children, okay. and one was what's called highly gifted and talented. Okay. So highly gifted and talented is a gifted and talented student that has a 160 plus IQ. Okay, and so um, we had identified those kids and the, the highly gifted and talented children in our school district, but we were throwing everything at them to slow them down. Mm. We, weren't, we weren't really providing an education that met them where they were at. We were yeah. working to slow them down to bring them to where we were at. Probably not challenging them either. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm just, you know, you got to, I'm, I'm just, I'm just a, you know, I'm not 160 IQ. <laughs> So you you have a pretty Most good size, pretty good size group of kids that were 160 IQ. Yes. Wow. Yes, in, and, and in that school district. Yes, and they're they're not exclusive That's to our school district. Fantastic. They exist all over all over Texas and all over America. But what? So what happened? I'm sorry, that was just that was just one of those things. I'm like, you, 
you identified a group that's not needs are not being met. Right, because public education should serve all children. All children. That's all right. children. All, all children. means all. All means all. Mm-hmm. Yes. Keep going. I'm sorry. That was great. Okay. So anyway, so after several meetings with my board and my superintendent, mm-hmm. we created a specialized school within a school to address these the, the needs mm-hmm. of what's called the, these highly gifted and talented students. Okay. And so basically it was an elementary program that supports uh, students earning dual credit college courses or um, being part of dual credit college courses when they enter into junior high. So throughout junior high, they're earning Mm -hmm. dual credit college courses. But really the main component when we got into the research of that was that these students needed incredible amount of emotional supports. Because even though their brain, I mean, you know, like in my kid's example, when my kids were five years old, they were reading the Wall Street Journal. So their mind is very accelerated academically, okay? And so even though their minds are uh, so high achieving and so advanced, they're still little children. They're yeah. emotionally still, you know, seven-year-olds and nine-year-olds. And so we identify they needed an incredible amount of check-ins, emotional supports, True. because you're pushing their minds so hard academically. Yeah. And it's just, it's a beautiful program. There are now um, five school districts, in my understanding. There's about five school districts now in the state of Texas that offer this type of program. That's outstanding. Uh, I mean, now, <clears throat> Julie, first thing, I did not graduate magnum cum laude or anything like that, valedictorian or anything. Mine was thank you, Lottie. I'm just thank you. I'm, <laughs> I'm out, right? But when you think of I love to hear about these gifted kids that get an opportunity to excel because they're pushed academically. You know, they may they think differently. They, they want to focus on the academia piece of things, whereas I didn't. I mean, I wanted to run. I wanted to do sports. Now, I will tell you, I am a superstar football player in my own mind. <laughs> But I was not on football field. I was not any good, right? I was guard and tackle. I guarded the water, and I'll tackle anybody who gets close to it, right? But but I love sports. I, I love sports, and and I love football. I love me playing. too. I love football. It was God's sense of humor that He gave me two genius sons. Yes, who will not step foot on a football right. field. I'd take them to football games in the infant carrier. That's how but much I might, love football. But they might own a football team someday. That's very likely, especially my youngest. Okay. God has given him a great mind for business and finance. That's good. That's good. But I had them, you know, in the infant carrier Friday night lights. And yeah. then when they got a little bit older, when they're toddlers, I'm still taking them to football, high school football games yeah. and college yeah. games, and they sit there and read a book the whole time. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's what God created them to be. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and with him being wanting to be so passionate about law, your older one, so passionate about law, there's no telling what he'll do. That's right. There's no telling where he'll go. He could be the president someday. Maybe. That's Maybe. what God wants. That's right. Maybe. That's right. Well, we're going we're gonna to shift gears uh, just a little bit because I want to talk about the removal. really want to talk about the removal of prayer in the schools. Um, so we 1962. That's right. We, we mentioned the biblical worldview, which you and I are spot on about. We, we understand that's, but that should drive all of our lives, uh, everything that we do uh, as believers. But 1962 comes around. Uh, we have some challenges. Yeah, Engel v. Vitale. Mm-hmm. Engel v. Vitale, New York. Um, files a suit to take prayer out, which I find to be interesting um, because previous to that, it was everything was based around they, they taught the Bible in school. 
They prayed in school. Sure. I mean, when you go back to it's called the Primer textbook. It's spelled like Primer, P R I M E R, but in kay. education it's referred to as Primer. So the Primer textbook is the oldest and longest running textbook in U.S. history in public education. It mm. was used for about 90 years in public education in America. And part of the Primer textbook is memorizing entire books of the Bible. Huh. I did not know that. So That's I mean, fantastic. and what know, years did that go away? Was it 1962? Uh, no, that was in the early part of American history. Okay, but it was—I mean—that was the textbook for 90 years in U.S. Mm. history as far as educating children. So it was—it was a, a primary. You know, I will—I will go back to my high school days, um, which one of my favorite teachers in high school was Miss Hurst. It was um, like a—I uh, guess it was like a literature class. Uh, we did some Bible. We did other things too, but. But it was part of literature. It was part of what we learned. Sure, because you can't understand the great works of West. You can't understand the great canon of Western civilization without an inference to the Bible or an understanding of the Bible. There's too many inferences and references to the Bible and great works of literature that mm -hmm. if you don't ha understand um, the Bible, you can't understand the great works of literature. That's true. That's true. You have to understand it all. You know, about that same time, wasn't it when the Christian schools started coming on the scene? Sure. Um, you know, where and homeschooling. The, yep, homeschooling. Right. All of these things became an alternative. Right. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that parents wanted um, they wanted a choice, right? Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, again, it's going back to parents' rights and who do children right. belong to. You know, I'm very quick to say if um, when talking to people or ever that they are parents' children. They're my students. As an That's elected right. official, they're not my children. They're my students. Mm -hmm. And so we, we've, we've gone too far conflating those lines, right? You'll hear elected officials in education all the time refer to them as their children, as my children. They're not. No. They're your students. Your job is their education. Yeah. It's the parents' job to raise them and instill the morals and values into that child. Mm -hmm. It's not your job to do that. Your job is to provide them a great education, again, that, prefer, that preserves our liberties and our freedoms. Well, and I'll, I'll add this, too, <clears throat> on that education piece. I think it's the, the challenge with the education system today is it's, it's not creating an environment where kids can learn how to think for themselves. Right, critical more, thinkers. Yes, it, it's, more, it's more memorization work, take the test, you know, whatever. But thinking for yourself, thinking, using those critical thinking skills mm -hmm. um, and, and – uh, one of my other favorite teachers was my algebra teacher. Um, and uh, she would tell me that I would use algebra all the time when I got out of school. And I just laughed at her. I'm like, there's no way I'm using this. Guess what? I use algebra every day. It's critical thinking. That's right. Right. It's critical and you thinking. can look at civil you can look at civilizations throughout history, right? There are civilizations even today. There are countries even today that create what I call great robotic children, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They can memorize and regurgitate on command, yep. right? Yep. But the what has really set America apart and set great civilizations apart throughout history is the ingenuity aspect. Right. It's the it is the critical thinking. It is thinking outside the box and really being um, creative in your thinking and the, in, in the ingenuity that really has um, propelled America to the top of the world stage. Well, and that's the physicist. That's the artist. That's the the people that think out of the norm or out of the box, so to speak. You know, I don't I don't have that much of a creativity in me. But my wife, 
my wife could see something on the side of the road that somebody threw out in the trash, want to pick it up, and it would she could make it beautiful. She has the ability to see what something could be versus what something is. Sure. And think of physicists and uh, Albert Einstein and all these different scientists. Uh, the German scientists we brought over after World War II that created NASA, or not created, but worked with NASA to build the rockets. Those guys think at a different level. Sure. You know, that's creativity. That's that creativity. They know how to work through those things. Sure. It's taking a firm foundation mm -hmm. in knowledge and then applying ingenuity and creativity yeah. to it, which is where greatness lives. And they continue to ask questions. Absolutely. And that's at, of themselves, of the science, of everything. Of everything. That's right. And that's, that's how we need to train our children. I agree 100%. You know, I was reading something the other day about the way and, and I'm, I'm very interested in this education of other countries and what they're doing but we have we have not allies I'm going to say not allies when I'm not going to say the countries but that we have countries that are not our allies that are teaching kids military training type stuff as young people sure in preparation for whatever could happen sure and we're worried about uh, and, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it like I see it. We're worried about teachers trying to figure out if a boy is a girl or a girl is a boy and which bathroom they need to go to. Sure. It's the distractions, right? Mm -hmm. It's the it's the social construct right now that yeah. has become a distraction in education. And in a lot of areas, we've lost the main thing is the main thing, right? I mean, whenever you have... Um, whenever you have more than a 60% illiteracy rate, whenever you only have 25% of children are mastering literacy skills or mastering uh, math skills, mm -hmm. right? 75% are not, 73% are not, okay? You don't have time in the school day to discuss social issues, right? Right. right. You're, you're, you're not educating children well, if at all, mm -hmm. right? So we don't have time to introduce all, to what I call making our children social experiments. Right. We do yes. not have time. Not only do we not have time, it's ethically wrong to make a social experiment out of a child. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's a child's life that you're playing with. It's not your and place. you are ignoring the parents' rights and roles and responsibility whenever you make a child your social experiment. I agree. And so the purpose of education is to provide a great education. Mm -hmm. The purpose of education is not to create social experiments out of children. That's right. Their role is to teach. Right. Not to not to train or coerce right. or deceive. Right. And even in that in that vein with, that you're talking about on the social experiments, right? I mean, we have federal law. We have existing federal law, the Parent Pupil Protection Act, mm -hmm. that says that it is illegal federally to ask a child their uh, their sexual orientation or their gender identity without a parent's approval. But they're doing it anyway. But it's happening anyways. Yeah. By there is a what I what I would classify when I talk with people. The main problem that we have in education right now is lawlessness. Mm. We have local school boards, we have state boards, we even have federal education boards right now that just are trampling over the laws in education wow. and over the laws and parents' rights. Wow. I mean, that's a powerful statement. It is. It is because we have to get back to the basics. We have to get yeah. back to the absolute foundation that children belong to their parents, parents' rights. And then we have to institute back into education um, instructional materials and education that follows state and federal laws. Well, let's go back to the law just a little bit because I know there's been a couple of cases recently 
um, that really have stirred up some attention, and, and rightfully so. One was the coach that was terminated for praying at the center of the field. Sure, Coach Kennedy. He, that's right. He didn't coerce anybody, but people started gathering. Um, and it reminds me of uh, Henry Black Blackaby, uh, Experiencing God, that study. I don't know if you've done that study, but it, it says, you know, it, everybody wants to be involved in what God is doing, right? But, but what it says is go find where God's working and go get involved. Exactly. Don't wait right here in this chair. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast is I kept talking about doing something where I could spread the biblical worldview and sure, get engaged. And yeah, I just, I have to do this. This is, this is what I felt like I had to do. So, but, but the coach for one, and I think you said there was a case in Maine Yes. that kind of, so you want to talk a little bit about coach Kennedy's case first, and then we'll talk about the main case. Yes. So in, in 1962, you know, the, um, Ingle v. Tolly case, you know, that instituted what was called the lemon test in education, right? There were three qualifiers and if it hit any of these qualifiers and it was not allowed in education. Mm -hmm. Okay. One of those was uh, prayer. So the, the very important thing about the coach Kennedy case in 2022 is that it can, it completely, negated the lemon test mm. the lemon test in education is gone coach kennedy case uh, the coach kennedy case totally wiped it out wiped it out great and so now we do have prayer back in schools right mm. as a result of, of the coach kennedy case an employee of a school district can play can pray how they want when they want in any manner that they want right because so what that said was it, you were infringing upon their rights if you yes. did not allow them to do that. Yes, that actually, the way the, the Supreme Court ruled on that was it was a civil rights violation, which, interesting enough, in education, a school district um, has to pay out punitive damages in civil rights violations. Mm. And so Coach Kennedy's case, you know, they went a step further, and I believe he was awarded about $2.5 million from his school district because but it was a civil rights violation to not allow him to pray. But now let's let's back up a little bit. <clears throat> is it a is it a civil rights violation if a teacher or a administrator is trying to influence a child to be something they're not? Oh, you mean as far as gender identity or sexual orientation? Yes. Well, to me, that usurps parents' rights, and there are strong parental rights laws in every state around this country. And then there's also the federal law again, uh, the PIPRA Act, that says that. Uh, a government entity through a survey, through a questionnaire, through classroom instruction is never allowed to ask a minor. There, so minor, right? Keep in minor. mind this is through high school, right? Mm -hmm. We're not just talking about little children. Is not allowed to ask a child their political persuasion, their religion, their sexual orientation, or their gender identity according to federal law without a parent's permission. Well, we know that's happening. We do. So what would be the natural recourse for well, parents? Parents. Parents need to stand up. They do. Those children are your children. That's right. You raise them the way you want to raise them. That's right. You teach them what you want them to know. Correct. And you let the educators teach them on what's in that textbook and textbook only. That is correct. Parents need to stand up and, and I mean, make a hard stand on this. Parents, it's your responsibility to do that. They are the parents' children. It's a big statement. Well, we see the statement happening from the other side, which is a very big, scary statement. Which the government owns the child. Right. Whenever you have from the president down to local leaders, you know, making statements that the government knows what's best for a child over mm -hmm. a parent, that the government 
which in its essence is children belong to the government. Well, whenever you operate from the world belief that children belong to the government, that's communism. Yeah. There are communist countries that communism operate. Communism 101. That operate from the belief that children you belong to the, the government. You may have the child, but the child belongs to the government. Blanks exactly. Yeah. So whenever you have a local school district, which is a government entity, making decisions on a child's gender and not, a for, and not informing the parent or hiding it from the parent, or you have a local school district that institutes mental health counseling for children where the parent is not involved and the school district is providing mental health counseling to a child without the parent's knowledge or even now where you have school districts that are instituting health clinics inside of the school districts fully functioning health clinics where medical decisions are even being made for a child and maybe the parent knows or maybe the parent doesn't know well then that comes from the communist belief that children belong to the government because now you have your local government making decisions for a parent's child with or without the parent without how, the parent's knowledge how in the world is that happening without that everybody being notified how is and i know i i can't stand mainstream media that's why we're on a podcast but the reality is how is how are people not shouting to the rooftops because this? i think that a lot of parents don't know that it's happening because so much is being concealed and hidden from parents i just don't think that parents know you know whenever you have a teacher in a classroom at the beginning of the school year and they're calling roll and they're asking every child what name do you want to be called and what identity do you want to be referenced to what pronouns do you want us to use okay when you ask them the pronouns or the or an alternative name you're asking them about their identity and i just don't think that parents know that it's happening in their child's classroom now I'll, let me back up and say uh, our dinner time was six o'clock every night when i was growing up and you were there whether you wanted to be there or not. And there was a lot of times we didn't have conversations. It's just just kind of the way I was raised, right? Not bad, not good. No, I mean, just that's just the way it was. Right. We, for most part, until the kids started working a job, we had dinner at a certain time every night. But we talked about all kinds of stuff. Because I'd ask them, hey, what'd y'all do today? What'd you learn today? How was school? What's going on in this class? What's And... and by the way, I, I used to bring home the Wall Street Journal and let the kids read it when they were about 12, 13. Have the journals all daily. I in my used home. to like it. I used to like it. It's gotten a little bit off for me, but so I'm on to something else. But, but the reality is that we always tried to invest time in them. Now, you're right. I agree. We got busy as parents. We were working, you know, both of us working, going two different directions. And a lot of times we didn't get as much time. But I'm pleading with the parents today. On this show, I'm pleading with the parents now, find out what your school is teaching. Absolutely. And put a stop to anything that is not within the realm of what the school is supposed to be doing. Absolutely. You have to do this. You have to do it. We haven't done it the last 15 years. Right, because I think what happened, I think what we got off is there's this generational trust that developed inside of our public school mm -hmm. system, right? I mean... For at least in a lot of Texas, generations of families have graduated from the same schools. Right. Right. Kids are graduating from the same school that their parents went to, that their grandparents went to, that maybe their great-grandparents mm -hmm. went to. So there's this generational trust that has developed. But what we saw during COVID, you know, COVID was a, was a, um, was a test bag. run. Right. That was mm -hmm. a that was a mixed bag. It was very hard on learning loss. Students lost 
Um, it was incredible uh, destruction and learning loss. It was incredible time for mental health, very bad time for mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw very high rates of child abuse go up. Um, because of the anxiety that parents were experiencing yeah. during that whole thing. So there was a very dark side to COVID, but there was a bright light in COVID that parents actually got to experience their children's education with them. Yep. And that was a blessing in disguise because parents all of a sudden are going, wait a second, that's not the school, that's not the teaching that I had, that's not the school that I, you know, physically it's the same mm-hmm. building. But that's not the education that I received. Grandparents were saying, right, because a lot of times some uh, first responder parents still had to work. And so children were left in the care of grandparents during the day. And grandparents were saying, wait a a second. (laughs) That right? That's not that. Again, that may Mm -hmm. be the same school in the same building that we've all graduated from. But that is not the education that we received. So the blessing of one, there was one very positive thing that came out of COVID was the transparency was that parents and grandparents got to actually see what their children were learning and education has drastically changed over the years. Well, that's a great segue into the next topic, which is HB 900. Yes. Uh, why don't you kind of tell us a little bit about what just passed, and then I want you to talk a little bit about some stuff that you've got going on right now, too, to help uh, the education system. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, we've seen from national organizations, right? We've seen even in Texas. In Texas, a couple of years ago, the Library Association held a conference for all the public school librarians mm-hmm. in the state where the keynote speaker was a man dressed as a woman. It was a drag queen talking about the importance of, of um, all of that. Everything. And, and we're seeing that nationwide. That's not... Sure, it's yeah. not exclusive to Texas. It's yeah. happening all over the nation. Right. And so, um, you know, we've seen school districts sponsor uh, drag queen shows for children and for families using public tax dollars to actually sponsor these shows. So, I mean, it's really kind of wild what's happening right now. But anyway, so we've seen that happen, and we've seen um, books come in. We've seen books that are recommended by the American Library Association that, um, according to Texas law, do violate. They are obscene or pornographic materials. They do violate um, Texas Penal Code, which is the new standard as far as library books in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. So um, the Texas State Board of Education was in charge of implementing HB 900, which bans um, pornographic materials, pornographic and obscene materials away from children. But then it also created a category called sexually relevant materials. So there are some even historical pieces of literature literature that have what's called sexually relevant um, wording or verbiage in them. Those are going to a new classification in the library where parents can give the children permission to access them. Mm -hmm. So nobody is, you know, burning books or doing anything like that. What we are saying is that we're not going to have children exposed to pornography and obscene materials because, you know, in the at least in our state, and I know a lot of other states are spending a lot of money on mental health, right. making sure that children are very well-rounded and emotionally strong. And so there is all kinds of mental health data that shows the, the negative effects, the detriment that happens when you expose a young mind to pornography. Yep. You're really creating um, a lifestyle and a way of thinking that a child should never be exposed to pornography. And unfortunately, many of our children have been exposed to pornography in their public schools or in the in the classroom library. So House Bill 900 signed into law by the governor 
bans um, pornographic and obscene materials from our classroom libraries and from our school libraries. Wow. And then this Texas State Board of Education, we just passed the policy that implements that. It, it, I mean, it's even crazy that we're talking about this. It is. Who would ever think that we would talk about five-year-olds having, having yeah. pornography in their, in their classroom? Right. I mean, really, especially in Texas, right, of all states, especially mm-hmm. in the great state mm-hmm. of Texas. That's right. I mean, we're in the South. You, you would just wouldn't think that that would be the case, but we're here, we're here yes. having that conversation. It's sad that whenever our legislature had so many laws to consider, right, they, they meet for a very short time, and they had so many laws to consider that keeping pornography away from little children had to go to the top, right, to protect our children. It's just, I don't know, it speaks a lot about society, but we really, we need to get back to the basics. We need to get back to the Word of God. We need to get back to the, the structure of the family and the importance of the family and really protecting our children from the family point of view, you know, um, mothers, dads, family. That's the bedrock of society. Yeah. Well, and that brings us to the next question, which is really, you know, I, I have not heard a lot about this until probably two or three years ago. Maybe during the middle of COVID is when I saw it the most, and it's critical race theory, CRT. Um, I, I'm going to give you a definition, but then I want you to give me your definition. The definition I have here is from the Legal Defense Fund, by the way. It says a CRT is an academic and legal framework that denotes that systemic racism is a part of the American society. It goes on to say that it's part of education, it's part of housing, employment, and health care. So what it's basically saying is that racism is a part of the framework of America in almost all aspects of human life. So we talk about education. You just mentioned earlier, education is a great equalizer. That's right. I, I don't. I don't understand a way that you could not get an education today if you wanted it. There are so many avenues to get sure. an education. Sure. A free education almost. If not free, almost free. I know I worked my way through. I didn't get, it wasn't free for me because um, I had to pay for it. And But I did everything I could to get through because it was a priority. Housing. We have so much assistance for housing. You could actually get in a house today um, and probably not pay a dollar through Section 8. So I'm just thinking out loud here, right? Sure. And you know what's so ironic, if you think about the, the irony of it, is the people that are proponents of critical race theory, the people that say that uh, the education institution from the local to the state to the federal level is based in systemic racism, are the same people that are, are opposing education savings accounts. <laughs> yes. Right? Because, I yes. mean, truly, if you really believe that, if you really believe that, that there is systemic racism, that every education institution from your local school district up is based in systemic racism but then you tell a poor minority mom that she doesn't have a choice that she has to send her child to a failing school to a school that has 80 percent illiteracy Mm -hmm. you can't have it both ways you can't tell a poor minority mom that your only option is a systemic racist school where her child is never learning to read right right and but then at the same time say we have to resolve systemic racism so it, it's, um, it's so ironic to me that anyone that truly, if 
if you truly believe that our institutions are based in systemic racism, then you should be a huge proponent for education savings accounts. You should be, uh, which brings up a good point. Um, you know, when you think about the voucher program, and I, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase 50,000 foot level. The sure. voucher program is that you can commit those funds to send your kid to a school that, and, and I think about magnet schools, okay, uh, science, STEM, STEM-type schools, where if your child, like yours, is gifted, you can send them to a school that's going to challenge them and push them to be the very best they can be. Sure. Why, why wouldn't an education system, the system itself, why would an education want to say, hey, this school's not going to challenge you, Let's move you to this school who is going to challenge you because that student's going to come out and become successful and look back and give credit to that school district. Sure. It doesn't make sense to not encourage that. Absolutely. So really what you need to look at is you need to look at the, does the money fund a system or does the money fund the child? It that's funds a system. It doesn't fund the child, right? Currently, that's what we're in. Okay. Where you're really going to have success in education is when money funds the child. Mm. Because then you could take one household, right? Let's just let's uh, create a household, right? Three children in the household. One child is disabled. One child is, uh, um, is very, let's say, gifted and talented, right? A very high achieving academically. And then maybe one child's just kind of, you know, just... Me, normal. average. Normal yeah. child that yeah. lives Thank the you, American Lottie, we dream. Get out of school, right? Yes, yes, which I have a I have a lot of friends who are owners of very large corporations that tell me they love to see students because they yeah. know how to work hard. Yep. Right. They're they're go getters and yeah. right. Okay, but anyways, that's another conversation. Yeah. But anyways, um, you know, when money fo- f- funds the child and money follows the child, well, then truly the parents are in the driver's seat. Maybe they have one child that really does thrive in a public education setting. They want all, you know, they, they mm. want to experience the, the drama classes or the sports teams right. or, you know, every all the great things that public education does offer when done mm-hmm. really well, okay? But then maybe they have another child that needs a smaller classroom, that needs a 10 to 1, right? 10 students mm-hmm. to 1 teacher or a 12 yeah. to 1 scenario. They need that more um, focused instruction because the child will thrive better in that environment. And then maybe they have a child that's blind or deaf, you know, um, very close to here, the Catholic schools, the archdiocese, the Catholic schools are, have some of the best schools for the deaf and the blind mm-hmm. in, in the state of Texas. But you, so. you can't, you can't send your child there without paying something different, right? Right. So you still pay your school tax. Right. But you send them to that school. Right. They get the help that they need. Right. The voucher it, and I'm just paraphrasing because I don't know. I'm asking the question. The voucher would allow some of those tax dollars that you pay for school to go towards that education. Is sure, that beca- sure. Because okay. what you need is you need what uh, the correct term is. You need the funding to follow the child. Okay. And so then parents choose where those dollars are directed to. Are those dollars directed to public education? Are they directed to private education? Mm -hmm. Or are they directed towards homeschool education? Mm -hmm. And then truly what we see in Florida and and areas of Florida is a hybrid model where where a parent can choose this portion of the dollars is going to go here, this portion of the dollars is going to go here. Mm -hmm. So you could have a child 
um, maybe do some courses at home in a homeschool setting and the rest of the yeah. days in public school. But again, you, to get to that point, which, by the way, on the national report card, which in by no means is partisan either way, it's truly a data-driven report card to rank states as part of education. Florida just went to number one in education. Really? Yes, which is hard for me as a proud Texan to admit that. <laughs> I understand. You know, there's only a handful of things I love more than my great state of Texas. So as a proud Texan, it's very hard for me mm -hmm. to admit that. But, I mean, we have to look at that. We have to respect their process and respect their laws that they have passed where, where students are funded, not systems are funded. And then we try to figure out how to duplicate that in other states. Absolutely. If it propels them to number one, and then absolutely we need to look at those policies right because um, there's only so long that I want Texas not to be number one absolutely, in education absolutely. of course I always want Texas to be number one so yes we need to take a hard look at those policies and we really need to look at what do the policies look like that fund the child instead of funding the system and CRT is a big subject and we could probably oh get, critical race theory so yeah. actually, you know, my first my first experience with cri with critical race theory as an elected official happened way before COVID. Um, okay. In 2015, I was a newly elected school board trustee, and I had a mom call me who, you know, she was a black woman, and she called me, and, you know, in Texas we would say, or in the South we'd say she was madder than a wet hen. Mm -hmm. Okay, we know what kind of mad that is, We right? do know <laughs> what kind of mad that is, yes. And she called me, and I'm telling you, she was hot. She was mad. And um, what was she mad about? She was mad because she called to tell me that her daughter in the school day had been taught that she was a victim based on her skin color. Wait, wait, let me back up. So you're saying a mother called you. This is 2015. Yes, it's 2015. So this, is, this is almost 10 years ago. It's nine years ago. Can you believe? Um, she calls you. She's a black lady. Calls you. Said her daughter was taught to be a victim? That her daughter... During her class during the day, her daughter was taught that she was a victim because of her skin color and that other people were oppressors because of their skin color. This so it's been around longer than the last few years. Oh, it's been around quite a while. It's not a new concept. It's been in our universities for a long time, and now it's about, um, I would say, probably about 12 years ago, around 12 years ago, it trickled into K-12, into public education. Wow. But anyway, she proceeded to tell me that she was a doctor and okay. her husband was a doctor, and they moved from a school district that was teaching critical race theory or a victim mentality to her daughter, that they intentionally moved to our school district because she didn't want her daughter to be taught that she was a victim based on her skin color. Again, she was telling me, you know, she was a doctor at the Texas Medical Center. Her husband was a doctor at the Texas Medical sure. Center. Very successful couple. And they did not want their daughter raised with a victim mentality. And she was highly upset that her daughter had been instructed that during the well, school day. I mean, let's go back to the premise of what CRT is. It's division. Division. It's, um, but, but it goes back and says because of their skin color, they don't have the ability to get an education, which by and the that's not true. Right, which, by the way, critical race theory was not in our governing documents of our school district, and it was not in our instructional material. It was a teacher that took it upon herself to teach it in the classroom. Really? What? Who is this teacher? Do you remember her name? I don't. It's been a lot of years. And, you oh, know. okay. Oh, you meant in the school. I was thinking from the start of all of it. No, no, okay. from, it was a teacher that took it upon themselves. Okay. So that's where we really need parents engaged also yeah. because parents – Need, you need to know what's happening in your child's classroom so that you can have effective conversations mm -hmm. with your local elected school board. Do, do we still have...
parent-teacher night? Yes. Well, in many districts we do. Some do, some don't, but yes, we do. You know, I I grew up having that, and I don't know that my parents ever went. I hate to say that, but I just don't think they ever went. If they did, I don't remember, Um, especially in high school. I mean, I, you know, I was working full-time going to high school. I I can't even remember. I don't even think I ever told them if that was going on, but um, I just wonder if that's still going on where it gives you an opportunity to sit down with the teacher, be in the classroom. Now, our our kid, our boys went to the school down the road here, uh, Magno, um, sorry, Montgomery, Texas, and I remember going to some, and yes. I remember, I, I, I love my I love my son to death, but the teacher said he sleeps too much. <laughs> and I remember that he mentioned that the other day in the, in the podcast. They're like, yeah, you did, son. You slept too much. But, and he wasn't tired. He just was bored. Bored, yeah. yes. And he's a very gifted kid that, sure. you know, really wanted to work more with his hands than he did. You know, he's very gifted and creative, so he wanted to do that. I remember he was the one always tearing things apart and putting it back together. Oh, what a great mechanical yeah. mind. He Yes, he does. He, he's very, very smart. So, I'm very, of course, I'm, I'm a little biased. I'm, I'm proud of him. But. That's fantastic. So, you, right, so like with critical <coughs> race theory, right, again, Texas and other states are spending millions of dollars in mental health to make mm-hmm. sure that we have, again, well-rounded, resilient, emotionally resilient children, mm-hmm. students, right? And so it is It is so strange to me that the people who are still teaching critical race theory in the classroom, right, the school districts that are still teaching critical race theory, that you're going to teach children based on their skin color that they're either a victim or an oppressor. Well, what mental health, what emotional health is associated with those, right? Yeah. If you're an oppressor, well, then you're going to, if someone's telling you, if someone's telling a little child based on their skin color they're an oppressor, what are the emotions that develop from that? Guilt, yeah. shame, frustration, right. anger, right? And then if you have another child that's taught based on their skin color that they're a victim, well, what emotions come from that, right? Because um, our emotions come out of our skill set, out of our knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So then what emotions come from that? Their anger, frustration, hate. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of bad things that come from teaching a child that you're either a victim or an oppressor based on your skin color. And so it, what's wild to me is that we're spending millions of dollars to create a well-rounded child emotionally, but yet in part of their, uh, in part of their academic day, we are heaping all of these negative emotions into their little minds. You know, you bring up a good point, Julie, that you have CRT out here, and then you have all this mental health. The CRT is creating a lot of the mental health. Absolutely. Issues. I mean, it's almost like, are you doing this over here? Because I'm always the thought is, don't look at what's in the hand. Look at what's the hand you can't see. Are you doing this over here to drive something over here? My fear is if you create an atmosphere of oppression and victimization in students, you create the ability for suicide. Absolutely. Because that mental health, mental health is real. And let me tell you, I, no matter what, if you ever hear any other show about mental health, if you are struggling, and I have struggled in the past, if you are struggling, please get help. Absolutely. Absolutely, please get help. Reach out. Reach Go out. see your doctor. Talk to someone that is a professional. Don't just go talk to Joe at the bar and have a beer with him. Go get help from a professional. Right. Because um, there is a time in my life when a I pastor, struggled. A pastor, a chaplain, a mental health Some, professional, yes. somebody. And I'm glad you mentioned chaplain. Yes, sir. 
I, you've got a pet project that you've just done in do. the state of Texas, and I want you to talk about that. I do. Um, so uh, Texas just passed Senate Bill 763, authored by Senator Mays Middleton, just an incredible leader. Um, there's just not enough good I can say about Senator Middleton. Okay. You know, he, he, takes, the, he takes the hard issues and yeah. just leads it with grace and strength. But um, I went and talked to Senator Middleton, and um, I told him, you know, the mental health piece is very real in our schools, mm -hmm. right? And um, there is a lot of data that supports chaplains, chaplains for mental health. You know, we saw the Department of Defense is one of the largest employers of chaplains in the world. Mm. And so they recognize the benefits of chaplain. The Federal Bureau of Prisons um, utilizes chaplains for prisoners in the federal prison system. The, the, the uh, Texas Department of Criminal Justice and our state prisons. If uh, A lot of people don't know, but Texas actually has one of the lowest recidivism rates in the country. Mm. The Texas recidivism rate, in other words, the people that go back into prison from yeah. leaving prison, it sits around 25 to 27%. If you go into New England states, it's north of 60%. Wow. And so I'm um, talking to people inside of the Texas, uh, Texas prison system is uh, they attribute a lot of that to their use of chaplains in the Texas prison system to help mm -hmm. guide the emotional and mental health of prisoners. Well, the prison ministry is big. I know that um, a good friend of mine is part of that prison ministry. And of course, we're just south of the main uh, headquarters Sure. And Huntsville for all of the prison systems. Sure. So, and yeah. so, you know, even the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy published an article in March saying that they had an all-time high suicide rate mm. in the U.S. Navy. And the response was they they uh, put out an order for 3,000 civilian chaplains wow. to add to their chaplain program because they recognize that chaplaincy is really critical to mental health. And then also we saw um, recently I've had the honor of meeting and having several conversations with uh, retired General Tom Soham. And General Soham was actually in charge of chaplains for the U.S. Army. Mm. Very, I mean, just an incredible patriot and an incredible servant. And under his command, the U.S. Army actually, based on a study done through Columbia University, they actually changed their protocol that every mental health team in the Army must have a chaplain on that mental health team because the data from the Columbia University study on the effects of chaplain and mental health, chaplain's mental health, is they realized that up to 70% or the data show that up to 70% of the things that we identify as mental health is not really mental health. It's anxiety and stressors from social constructs outside of our mental health. Oh, wow. And so chaplains really thrive in helping people to work through those um, those social constructs, those of uh, anxiety mm -hmm. and the pressure from external social societal issues. Chaplains, the Department of Defense has recognized that chaplains are the primary person to help people work through that. So let's let's back up and take this to a level. So this project, this 
Yes, Senate Bill 763 signed by law and by Governor Abbott in June of 2023 now allows for school districts to either employ or allow volunteer chaplains on every school campus in the great state of Texas. That's fantastic. And then the state even went further. So in the school safety and security allotment funding bill, this uh, state of Texas provided almost $2.5 billion in mental health and school safety for for, everyone. education in the state so now the the schools actually have the funding to employ school chaplains wow so so let's go back to some of the things you mentioned the chaplain is there for the students obviously but and the teachers i was going to say but and and the teachers right and one of the things you mentioned that i find out of this study that you were talking about that interesting is it's the social construct outside of maybe school so we have we have all kinds of things going in school, right? Um, and and look, it was there when I was there. It was there when you were there. Sure. Of course, I'm much older than you. But well, I wouldn't go that far. But okay, um, <laughs> I'll just agree with you on uh, that one. Okay. <laughs> um, bullying. Right. Uh, clicks. Right. Um, you know, uh, just talking stress from grades. Right. Um, pressure from you know parents to make the best grades. Pressure on. Baseball, football, track teams, basketball. Family issues. Family issues. Boyfriend, girlfriend. I've seen more drama and boyfriend, girlfriend stuff. Sure. All of those things create that anxiety that may not be, like you said, may not be a mental health, may be a result of a situation that they're going through. So that chaplain can be there to be that sounding board. Sure. So there's a couple of things about chaplains because, of course, chaplains and education is brand new. Senate Bill 763, the Texas School Chaplain Mm -hmm. Act, is the very first time in America's history that a state has approved school chaplains. You've got to be you've got to be proud over that. I think my heart is not really proud. It's thankfulness. Yeah. I mean, I'm, there were a lot of great people involved. Sure. Again, Governor the you know Governor Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Senator Middleton, Representative Cole Hefner uh, authored it on the House side. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of great people who stepped forward to do the right thing for teachers and students. So, I mean, I think uh, God put me in a unique position to influence it and to um, help it pass and to you know help author it. But yeah. really, my heart is it's thankfulness. Yeah. But. Um, but anyway, so we ha- when you have to look at what's happening in education. So if we look at it from a teacher's point of view, okay? So if a teacher is going through something, who does a teacher have to talk with? The teacher's only choice right now is to either talk with a coworker who they can hope keeps their confidence, mm-hmm. right? Maybe the teacher's going through a divorce or a custody issue or a problem with a child in a classroom. A yeah. teacher has no one to talk with right now. Or a teacher's other option is to talk with somebody who's in a superior position to them who will affect their education career. So even if you look at our teachers, and then also we have another new dynamic in education, that teachers are being diagnosed with PTSD. Now, PTSD is a mental health diagnosis from the military and from first responders. So if you think about now, you actually have teachers who are being diagnosed with with mental health problems that are that our military has experienced and first responders experience, we need to bring every mental health support we can for our teachers. I, I'm listen. I, you're preaching to the choir on this one, but one of the things that I think, and this message goes out to teachers. Um, I, I don't know about a percentage, but 
teachers are generally called, kind of like preachers, right? Absolutely. No, they're no, not they're not doing it for the glory right. or for the money or And they're sure not doing it for the money. That's right. right. Um and, and teachers aren't paid enough. I'm just telling you. Although not. whenever I was a trustee, my teachers were among the highest paid in the state of Texas. Teachers it, were a priority for me. Listen, it not <laughs> enough. I mean, not I enough. mean they they're all uh, yes, yes, I agree with what you're saying, but what I mean by that is is teachers have to do a lot. They do. Um they're they're um, they wear many hats. Really, really good teachers, uh, it burdens them when their students are burdened. And so you're talking about them having the ability to go talk to a coworker. Teachers, listen to me. Get the help you need. I love that this chaplain program is there. And the chaplain program, if it's something bigger than they can handle, then they can refer them to someone else. Absolutely, um, because chaplains are very <coughs> different than pastors. Mm -hmm. Okay, pastors are trained to represent their religion and their faith mm -hmm. inside of their religion and their faith. That's correct. Chaplains are trained to represent God in a secular setting. Mm -hmm. It's why you can have like one chaplain for the U.S. Senate, but yet the chaplain can provide prayer and counseling and um, uh, support to anybody of any faith inside the U.S. Senate, mm -hmm. right? We have chaplains all throughout our society paid for with tax dollars. You know, uh, House of Representatives, U.S. Senate, State House of Representatives, Senate, even our airports have chaplains. You know, oh, I didn't know that. Yes, Intercontinental Airport here in, in Harris County in Houston has a chaplaincy on staff, hmm. Hobby Airport. You know, our airports throughout the nation have chaplains, our hospitals. So all throughout society, we have chaplains being paid for with tax dollars. Mm -hmm. So this, the idea of that, you know, the establishment breaks the establishment clause or separation of church and state, that's just a farce. First of all, separation of church and state is not, not in the U.S. Constitution. Mm. What is in the Constitution is the establishment clause that says that you cannot have a state-sanctioned religion. Okay, yes. but chaplains are trained to represent God in a secular environment. So a chaplain does not institute a religion. That's why you can have, you know, chaplains, like I said, military, prisons, right. airports, hospitals, police departments, city councils, state governments, local governments, and all employ chaplains. Yeah. So it's time that we bring chaplains into education for our students and for our teachers. Now, chaplains, like I said, chaplains are key at uh, suicide prevention. Mm. Right. So the Department of Defense, their own data, right, with the U.S. Navy saying, OK, we have a suicide problem. What's our answer? We're going to bring in 3000 chaplains. Yeah, and that's a big number. That is a big that's number. a big number because well, it's an addition too. yeah, that's right. It's a good friend of mine was a commander. He was a chaplain in the in the Navy. Um, it was actually I think he was stationed with the Marines for most of the time, but just great guy had been to Iraq, been right in the battlefield with we're right alongside the guys. And, and we've talked about some of those difficulties. Those guys, this is a huge thing for the military to have those chaplains ready to go. Sure. So yeah. even when you look at an 18-year-old that's going into a, the military, right, mm -hmm. an 18-year-old going into the Army will, be, will have a mental health team available to them that includes a chaplain, mm -hmm. but yet a 17- or 18-year-old coming out of our high school does not have that benefit. Yeah, that's right. And they that's should right. have. They should have. They should and have. And they do now in Texas because of you. They and, do. And your team. They do. Team. They yeah, do because right. of a lot of great people. That's yes, right. Texas is the first to lead this. And now the um, the School Chaplain Act is now filed in many states. Wow. We have a lot of it, it. 
it's so interesting to see what's happened where, you know, it was just kind of a conversation, like I said, that I had with Senator Middleton and Representative Cole Hefner and mm-hmm. that it's now grown into a national movement that now we have 11 states that have either filed it or about to file it. Yeah, that's great. It is. Tell me, tell me what your thoughts are on how the education system is going to be impact between this major immigration and invasion at our southern border. I mean, it's it's dynamically impacting our country, uh, regardless of what anybody says. I think that I saw the last number was a little over 12 million in the last three years have come across the border. Huge percentage of that. Well, I don't know about huge, but a big percentage of that is kids. Sure. So how does that impact our education system? My goodness, this this could be a whole other show. It could right. be, yeah. Um, Okay, so let, let's look at it because it's not only education, it's humanitarian, right? right? Okay, so we have, if you say that 12 million people, if that's the data that 12 million people have come over the border illegally in the last three years or three and a half years, then you have to think a reasonable number of that would be 20 to 25% of that is children. Mm-hmm. So when you think about that two plus million people that have come over the border illegally are children, where are those children? Yeah. Where, Where did they, they go? Yeah. Right? That's a big question that I don't think anybody's asking. Right, and we need to ask it. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, especially as Christians, we need to ask what's happening yeah. to these children. Whose care are they in? Because we know now, you know, talking, I was in Eagle Pass not too long ago, talking with uh, leaders um, of the Border Patrol, and we know that these children, they're not coming over as families. They're not coming no. over with family members. They're people that are smuggling them into the country. But then what happens? I mean, uh, that's a huge number. Think about yeah. two-plus million children. Children. Where yeah. are they? And and they're, I know some have filtered into the school system. They have. We have roughly about half a million that have filtered into the school system in, so, so in let's Texas. So do the math. A half a million out of, at 25%, you're talking 3 million people. Right. Million kids. Where are they? Where are they? I mean, it it's scary to think. I mean, it's scary to think of what the options are, and and somebody's got to ask this question. Somebody wants this to happen. Okay, they want these kids to be infiltrated into the society without them being in the school system, and the question becomes is. What's this purpose? And it's ominous. It's Right. It's it doesn't scary. lead to any good conclusions. No good conclusions. To hiding a child from any from all any and all recognition. Right. Hiding a child does not lead to any good like there's no. there's no way to extrapolate out that yeah. it's gonna have a good positive benefit for the child when and, they're completely hidden. And it's not the it's not the children's fault. It's right. not their fault. Right, they're, they're being, children. They're trafficked in here. I'm going to call it that word because when you have um, a military-age man with three kids bringing them across the border, right. I, there's no other way to call it but trafficking. Right, so that even goes kids. back to the chaplain. So, you know, it was very interesting whenever we were going through the passage of the Texas School Chaplain mm-hmm. Act, the people that came to testify before the House and the Senate. And one of the people that testified before the House and the Senate, their testimony was at a volunteer chaplain at an elementary school, okay? okay. This is public testimony. That a volunteer chaplain at an elementary school noticed that there were these little girls, like I don't know, 10, 12 little girls that were dropped off and picked up every day by a limousine. 
Well, now, if you live in more affluent areas of Texas, there are transportation services that kind of have their stick, right? Like in my area, there's a pink limo, a pink Hummer that, mm-hmm. right, you can have okay. pick up. So, there, you know, people have like their, their gimmicks, their advertising, right, for to provide transportation for working parents. So the chaplain told the te- told one of the teachers, do you think that's normal that these little girls, eight-year-old little girls, eight- and nine-year-old little girls are picked up every day? and dropped off every day by a limousine, and the teacher's response was just like my response. Oh, well, that's just their thing. That's a, a transportation company, whatever. That's just their get their shtick, right? Yeah. And so anyways, but it didn't set right with the chaplain. So the chaplain went to the local sheriff, and the sheriff did investigate it, and it turned out that it was a like a brothel. It was what? a It was all these little eight- and nine-year-old little girls that lived in this affluent neighborhood that were part of a sex trafficking ring. And they were in the schools every day like normal. So that, when you think about these children that are missing, it's in all economic classes. It's in all areas. It is throughout society. Okay, so we have that's another function of a school chaplain. A school chaplain is trained to look at what's happening in the school because you have to think about a a school chaplain their only duty is the spiritual care of the teachers and the students they're not in a classroom every day they're not they're not doing schedules that's Mm -hmm. not their function their function is the spiritual care and to see every child and every student and I'll give you another example we ran an experiment in an elementary school of about 600 kids and we put the names of every child on the conference room area, right? And we told every person in this school, pull the name of the child that you know. The janitors, the cafeteria workers, the school secretary, counselor, I mean, everybody that works on that campus, we said, pull the name of the child that you know. And whenever that was done, there was a little bit more than 20 children that nobody on that campus could identify. They, they had, nobody on that campus knew who they were. Okay, mm. and so when you look at uh, young children, uh, forgive me if I'm getting a little bit in the weeds, no, but no. I think it really kind of explains the important. importance of a school chaplain. When in younger children, a child that does not want to be seen, they're experiencing what's called adverse childhood experiences. It's okay. actually called an ACE score, and it's adverse childhood experiences. And a, a young child in elementary that is experiencing severe amounts of trauma does not want to be seen. They do everything they can not to be seen or heard or identified. Mm-hmm. So when you have more than 20 kids on a campus of 600 children who do not, I mean, if nobody knows them on the campus, that child is intentionally trying not to be seen or heard. Right. But something happens after junior high and into high school, that child that is experiencing a, an incredible amount of trauma that has a very high ACE score adverse childhood experiences, then whenever the hormones kick in and all you know all the changes happen in the in the mind and in the emotions and in the body due to hormone fluctuations and hormonal changes, that's the students who potentially do very bad things. Because then they want to be seen, they want to be heard, and they want everybody to know who they are, but it's not in a good, constructive way because they've been through a significant amount of trauma. So that is another function of why we need chaplains in our schools because we need every child seen and heard. And if they're intentionally trying to hide because of an intense amount of trauma, we need somebody that still sees them and hears them and that can intervene in their life to rescue them out of that trauma. We we gotta have people that care about them. Absolutely, we gotta have people that care about them. You know, I think about um, 
Miss Gazel, my algebra teacher, and uh, Mr. Saypaul, who I dearly love to this day, and Miss Hurst, who was my literature teacher in high school, and um, Mr. Nance, my principal in high school that used to get me out of class from time to time and just chat with me. I knew they cared. And and the scary thing is, is I knew if I needed them, if I, if I really needed to talk to them, um, I could go talk to them, and I think they would help me. And it's sad that in some instances I think about these 20 kids and they don't have anybody that they that's can right. go to. And that scares me for them. Right. We have a school district in Texas that last year <clears throat> they have an unusual high number of suicide rates per capita in this particular school district. Mm. And the youngest one to commit suicide was six years old. God. I mean, when you think about a six-year-old, a first grader committing suicide, that is an extreme amount of trauma and despair and no hope in that little child's life. We must do everything we can for to for, to provide supports for the for the children for these children. I mean, we so have to so have. What's we, the plan? We need chaplains in our schools. We ab- we are I mean, we absolutely need because we need somebody that is looking out for the spiritual care of every child on every school campus. Absolutely, and and that is being rolled out now. I hope it pray. is uh, actually in the law is in the state of Texas the way the law is written now. It's a little bit different each state now. I told you okay. there's 11 states that are e- have either filed it or are about to file it for their session in 2025. Mm-hmm. Okay, 2024, okay. 2025. Right. Um, they're developing a little bit different for their states. Uh, but in Texas, part of our law is that every school district in the state of Texas must vote by March 1st on whether they are going to have school chaplains or not. Because in the I mean, is it even a vote? I mean, why do we even, the necessity of it based on your description right there just breaks my heart. And I'm thinking, why is it even a vote? Well, because as conservatives, we believe in the value of local governance. We didn't want it to be state mandated. We didn't yeah. want it to be a mandate from the state because we do value um, the importance of local government and local control. But I would agree with you. I, I cannot imagine, I really, with knowing what's happening yeah. with mental health and trafficking and things happening in our schools, I cannot imagine a school district not wanting to provide a chaplain for teachers and school uh, yeah, teachers I, and I, students. I'm pleading with every superintendent, every board member every principal, um, every teacher, every parent, please, please, please make sure that this vote goes through. The chaplains are there to help the kids and the teachers and the staff and the staff. And support the parents, right? Mm -hmm. Another role of a chaplain is to provide, is to provide a a neutral person, right? We see, sometimes we see conflict between teachers and parents, right? So objective person. Right. So a a chaplain just brings the temperature down. The chaplain, a chaplain is a good communicator between the school and the parents. They recognize the rights of the parents. They recognize the needs, what what you know, students' needs are, what yeah. have you. So there's just a whole lot of good that comes from putting a chaplain on a school campus. So so you're a parent. I'm a parent. Um, let's let's pretend we're talking to a parent with young kids. What advice would you give them about making sure their children are safe. I mean, if I go back and I kind of recap some of the things we talked about, there's some difficult things going on in our education system. And I said that from the beginning. It's off the rails. 
But hearing some of the things you're saying, it's it's even more terrifying. But if if you're sitting down with a, a parent that's got a, a child about to go to kindergarten, what advice would you tell them? Pay attention. Pay, Pay attention. attention. Pay attention to what, what is the recommended reading. What What's the reading list? Read the books on the reading list. Read with your children. Okay. Pay attention. Look at what the instructional materials are. You know, we passed a wonderful law again in, in the great state of Texas, House Bill 1605, that says that parents, 30 days prior to the school year, parents must have access to all instructional materials that's going to be used in their child's education. That includes the teacher guide. That includes every worksheet, everything online, anything mm-hmm. that's going to be used in their child's education. The parent must have access to it 30 days before school begins. The only thing excluded is test, right, for obvious yeah, reasons, sure. okay? Sure. But really use that portal. Your school district's going to have to provide it for you. Go into that portal. Look at what your child is learning every day. Look at what uh, instructional materials are used. Look at um, what worksheets are being presented. And really find your voice. Your local elected officials, your local school board trustees, they are elected by you and for you. And Mm -hmm. education should always support the parents. Education does not supplant the parents' rights. It should always support the parents' rights. And so if there is anything that is of concern to you, let your voice be heard. You know, just to kind of recap, Julian, thank you, by the way. This is... Uh, scary and eye-opening all at the same time. But what I'm hearing is, parents, you got to stay involved. You got to plug into the schools. You got to know what they're teaching. You got to stand up for your rights. They're your children. That's right. They're not the school's children. They're not the government's children. They're your children. That's right. And run for school board. Serve. Yeah. Right. If you want to, if you want a seat at the table, mm-hmm. join one of the committees run for school board. You know, there's great organizations that parents can join that gives them really great toolkits. And the schools need the parents to be involved. Absolutely. The Harvard Literacy Study, which is considered the gold standard in literacy, Mm -hmm. you know, after this multi-year, very expensive study that Harvard did, it's called the Harvard Literacy Study, basically to really kind of sum it up, the conclusion of the Harvard Literacy Study is that parents are key to childhood literacy. Yeah. So, you know, education doesn't work without parent involvement. That's right. It just does not work. It's right. it's like trying to use a square wheel. It doesn't. Yeah, no. You parents have to stay engaged and That's involved good. in their child's education. Well, Julie, I, I first and foremost, I want to thank you for coming on, and I'd love to have you back. I want to talk about more topics, uh, especially topics that are impacting the secondary education in college. And I know that you're in the, you know, primary and K through twelve, but I know just from talking to you, you've got some opportunity to add value to to the collegiate level and what's going on there. But I, I keep noticing this pin on your on your dress there. Yes. And it's it, it looks like an eagle. I can't see it, it very is. well, but can you tell me tell me a little bit about that? Uh, that's an eagle sitting on top of a pearl that represents the world. This is the first okay. wives pin. Um, the first fir- wives pin. Uh, the first wives of, of presidents get to create oh. a pin, a, okay. a piece of jewelry that represent their feeling of um, of their, I guess, their views, their world okay. views. And this is the eagle of freedom, and it's a beautiful mm. eagle with its wings stretched out yeah. um, over a, a pearl that represents the world. So it's it's called the eagle of freedom. First wives congressional pin. 
Nice, nice. Well, thank you for being here. Obviously, securing the education for America K through twelve is a top priority of yours. Absolutely, it's obviously a priority of mine. Uh, but it sounds like to me that you are making great progress in moving uh, Texas and the U.S. and the EU in the right direction. I want to thank you for your service, for one, because it is a calling. And and no matter what type of sense of humor God has, he called you to the right position, it sounds like. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. And if people would like to follow or know more about, you know, things that, that I'm working on or, or issues that um, we're working on, they can go to my website. Okay. It's uh, www.juliepickren.com, J-U-L-I-E. P-I-C-K-R-E-N, juliepickren.com, and I would love to connect with people. Yeah, I would highly encourage our viewers to go out and check out your website. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's all kinds of things coming out all the time that, you know, in two weeks from now, you may have something else going on in the state right. that, that is helping the education. Um, two things I want to really stress. One is the kids belong to the parents, right? not the government. Right. Um, and I'm so excited about this chaplain program. Um, I think it's a game changer. It's a game changer. I love it. You just took the words right out of yeah. my mouth. It is a game changer. And I think, I think I see maybe 10 years from now, we're able to go back and study the data that you love so much, study the data on the impact of the chaplains. You know, it takes a year to 18 months to get them infiltrated and get things moving. But sure. I think you're going to see a snowball. And we already have that. international data on that. There's already an organization that's providing school, full-time school chaplains to uh, 27 million students internationally. They're in 24 countries currently as we wow. sit. And so they already have incredible data because they, yeah. they are working with federal governments because education works different from country to country. Most okay. In most countries, uh, education is ran at the federal level. And so they have um, incredible data. And their numbers are incredible. 80% reduction in teen pregnancies in these 24 countries in 13 years, not one reported suicide. Um, That's I, great. I just, I could go on and on. Their data yeah. is incredible. Good. Well, we want to see that happen here in Texas. That's and right. And of course, nationwide. That's so right. Thank you again for your service. Thank you so much for being on. And sure. hey, like and subscribe. They've got a lot of great shows coming up. Uh, we're going to have Julie back. Um, we want to talk more about just different things in education. So uh, good luck to you, and uh, thank, thank you. you so much for being here. Yes, sir. God bless you, and God bless Texas. Thank you. All right.